Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good thanks, John. Again? Again, I'm back. More exciting retail news. Yeah, it doesn't stop at the moment. Yeah, not good news though, is it? No, not this week. Never mind. Uh, and Julia, for sure. How are you doing, Julia? Good, John. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. And you've written the cover feature this week. That's right. All about the uh, changes for regulation and gambling companies. Indeed. And, and, and again, that is exciting, potentially for, for good reasons. It is. Yeah, it's been a tough time in the UK and Australia, but it looks like changes in the US could potentially make up for that. Well, let, let's hope so. Although I'm not a big fan of gambling, but nevertheless... Investors, as investors, we are neutral in our in our kind of politics. Um, okay, right. Let's start with the uh, retail news this week, which has come from Dixon's. Dixon's. Yeah, not it's... actually even a shop you see on the high street anymore. Well, no, indeed. Yeah. Since their since their twenty fourteen merger with uh, with Carphone Warehouse, you're either going to visit a Carphone Warehouse or a Curry's, or both, or both, and that's it, really. So, um... Di- actually, I looked this up. Dixon's, uh, despite what I said earlier, do have some shops still. They are in airports. I see. Well, in which case, it's a, it's a very very small proportion of the estate. Um, it is indeed, and. Uh... Yes, the the sort of marketing and branding is yeah is not wholly synonymous with their existence on the stock market. Indeed, and 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 even I mean I think I've said this to you before. Car phones. Who has a bloody car phone now? Well, yes, I, <laughs> I seem to remember you saying that at the time of the merger and saying that that was going to be the opportunity for them to really drop that phrase from all branding and you know all names. But uh, but no, they hung on to it. Yeah, Dixon's car phone. Yeah. Wow. Although having said that, it's a branding disaster, really, isn't it? It is a bit, and. The big news yesterday that came out of this profit warning is that they're actually going to shutter quite a lot of those Carphone Warehouse stores. About Ni- 92? Yeah, 92. Okay, and, th- and, and it is Carphone Warehouse stores that are being shut, is Yes, yeah. Okay. Right, so Dixon's Carphone, which trades, uh, most people would know, through Curry's, in fact. What's the problem? Oh, well, that's... Ooh, where do we start? <laughs> exactly. There's a broad question um, and one that I think is better answered in a, in a chronological sense because really you have to go back to last summer, which was the first profit warning that we really had from them. And at that point, they really blamed the mo- mobile market. They're obviously intrinsically tied to Apple and the releases of the iPhone that come out and for people upgrading handsets that historically has been a huge part of their business. And all of the sort of issues that Apple was having last year around that launch, which inevitably got delayed, then had quite a serious knock-on effect at Dixon's and they were forced to issue a profit warning as a result. Okay, so so let me get my head around this. They basically do more business, it would seem, when there is a new phone release. It's a big boost to their earnings. Yeah. And if that new phone release is delayed, then their business suffers. It's a, it's really bad news. And the delay last year, although not necessarily momentous in Apple terms, what it did was push all of those potential sales back into Dixon's second half. So suddenly they've got a problem on interim results, which mm. came out in December. See, I'm already starting to really not like this story because <laughs> it sounds to me like their fortunes are not in their own hands. Yeah, I mean, they're intrinsically tied to not only other companies like Apple, but also the general economic climate. And that's why I think we've ran with them as sort of the lean news story this week is that very often they're held up as this sort of bellwether Mm -hmm. on the high street of really sort of indicative of what else is going on in the economy. Okay, so so the other thing that I would imagine is good for curries is people moving home. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, because obviously they sell a lot of white goods. Mm -hmm. Is that that a problem at the moment? It's a massive problem. And the reason is not because they're not selling them, it's because of how they're selling them, which is something that you and I have talked about at length this week, which is that 
what they're seeing is that people are going in store, scraping all of the knowledge out of the people who are working there. And so I, really... I, I'll, I'll come back to that point, because <laughs> well... I'm pretty, pretty sure that they're not scraping very much. Well, we, there's we... a caveat, but <laughs> even so, they are. And ultimately what they're doing, of course, is going to see the range and see the products in person. And either for one reason or another, either it's not in stock or they just don't want to buy it there and then, they then go online to purchase these high-ticket white good items. And the reason that that is so bad for Dixon's is that in order to deliver those products it's extremely expensive and so the margin for online sales even though the sales themselves are accelerating the margins are diluting at the same time I mean I kind of get that but you know when you get even if you were to go into a shop and buy a fridge you know you're not going to put it in your boot, are you? No, exactly. So, so, so that delivery cost is nothing new, despite the, the fact that it's being ordered online. It's I, not I don't new, quite get it. But I agree. I think what it must come down to is a volume issue, which is now not only are they selling fridges every so often, they're selling fridges and someone's perhaps buying smaller electrical goods at the same time, which they would normally buy it in store and mm. they're sort of doing it all online so you've got these huge bulk orders going out um, i mean do you have got you have competition in the sector which perhaps is is better set up to cope with an online environment so we have for example ao world which is also listed i mean uh, are we seeing the same problems coming through from their business it's interesting i mean ao world is obviously a new business so they've really followed the digital pure play angle and their big sort of push they got the uk sort of sorted very quickly in their minds and then moved into europe very quickly and they spend money like there is no tomorrow we've always been pretty bearish on ao world because really investors in that business are going to see lumpy if any consistent profitability in the near term and pretty much zero returns so for me it's not the ideal business but to give AO World a one second of credit it's to say that that is the future people are going to be buying these things online and it's going to work like a lot of the retail industry which is that you probably have one flagship showroom where people can come and if they have problems they can talk to someone real but ultimately a lot of the purchasing decisions will be completed online okay so so that's that i get curry's dixon's dixon's car phone whatever you want to call it differentiates itself on the basis that people do go into stores because they do like to look at what they're looking at and actually they do like to uh, converse with a real person who apparently has some knowledge that they don't have about what is the best thing for them to buy but they have also admitted and this this um this comes through loud and clear from my own experiences but also from a reader who commented on your story that anyone who's tried to buy and this is from profits on the website anyone who's tried to buy anything from this retailer recently would never invest in them i sold my shares in june last year after trying to buy an expensive camera from them i failed due to a total lack of interest from any member of staff and i experienced the same thing when i tried to buy a laptop well yeah and i was telling you i tried to buy a laptop a year and a half ago from there and we went through this huge lengthy process of comparing models and different sizes and all the rest of it and the guy was pretty helpful to give him his due only to end up with the reality that the one that we wanted wasn't even in stock that's so i had to order it online well yeah i mean that's that's extraordinary yeah um but you know my issue was they didn't actually know anything so i'm trying to buy a laptop i'm trying to get a, you know an idea of of its functionality it was it was one of those uh it's like a uh, what do they call them? It's like a two-in-one device. It's like a tablet. Oh, a tablet that it. you sort of click in. Yeah, my yeah. kids, my kids wanted them, and they wanted to like draw on them, mm-hmm. which they've been doing on a tablet. And I kind of go, so you know, how what software can I get? You know, how how quick is it? Uh, can I get the accessories to go with it? They did not have a clue, mm. a clue. It was extraordinary. I left. I went and researched it myself, but I did actually end up buying it from them. I did not. 
I ended up going to an Apple Partner, not an Apple store, but an Apple Partner um, branch in my local town, and they had everything. And I would say that the guy in there, it's a much smaller site. Um, it's obviously a lot more niche. They're obviously tied to just Apple Apple products, which is limiting, but that was the one we had decided we were going to go with. And the guy in there was full of even more knowledge than we had got at Dixon's. So, yeah, I, I did not end up purchasing with them. Indeed. So, so but... To address this, they're going to pump 30 million into customer service. That's a huge number. It 30 is a huge million number. To, to get their customer service up to speed. I mean, Dixon's is a huge company, so set against, I don't know, something like the market cap, it doesn't necessarily sound so huge. But, but set yeah, against their profits. Exactly. It, when you start to set it against what actual money they have available to be investing in the business right now, it is huge. And I suppose what investors will want is a much clearer idea of exactly what they mean by that. Because really, Alex Baldock's comments yesterday were really quite vague. They just sort of came up with this figure and uh, and where it was going to go. Mm. I mean, I noticed a, a comment from Harry Wallop uh, mm. on Twitter, formerly of this parish, uh, who said that basically, he, I think he, I don't know whether he was buying a PC or a phone, but he ended up in the wrong queue. How can you have a wrong queue in a shop these days? I know. Well, he, I think his experience was that they have separate tills at the moment for mobile purchases and, and small electricals. And yeah, but, he wasn't even informed until he got to the front that he was in the wrong but queue. But his, his point is that they've been four years merged. So, you know, that should have been addressed by now. You know, my experience was I walked in to pick up the item that I had actually ordered online and there wasn't actually a, a click and collect pickup point. And, and when I did, I, said, you know, I stood at the till and it's like, yeah, well, you know, go over there. And then someone else shunted me somewhere else. And, you know, it was chaotic. Well, this was another big revelation in yesterday's profit warning was that Mr. Bulldog admitted and said the integration is by no means complete. And I think they're getting basics wrong. Well, he basically implied that too. He said in not so many words that they had taken the eye off the ball with things like the Sprint deal in the US and things like the Honeybees system, which they disposed of earlier this year. And basically, I mean, he's only been in the job a few weeks, but uh, I think why people perhaps are a little bit shocked by the warning and why the shares fell so drastically is that this guy is coming out and sort of lifting the veil on what has otherwise been considered an all right business for the last few years. Is, is this kitchen sinking the failures of previous management? It could well be. I'm very interested to see when the full years come out, if they take massive impairments on anything or massive changes charges. Um, They did detail a little bit in that profit warning, and I won't go into it now, but they did detail a little bit about non-cash impairments that they're going to take, but that really had to do with disposals and things like that. But whether they do anything more drastic around that at the time of the full years, I'd be very keen to see, because that to me is a very typical new CEO strategy. I think we've written features on this in the past, which is that you can go in and sort of reduce everything back to zero. And then, of course, you've set yourself up for the next 12 months to look absolutely fantastic, because you're coming from a very low base. I personally would not touch it with a barge pole. And that, that would be a scuttlebutt type uh, decision because the experience I had was so bad. And I think there's so much needs to be done to fix it. Yeah, I was saying to, uh, to some people earlier today that the funny thing about retail and why Harry Wallop is an excellent person to follow on Twitter <laughs> is that he is very much sort of in the trenches with it and very much from a customer experience point of view. And it's funny how often those don't marry up with what is going on with the share price and from an investor's point of view. Riding certain waves on the market is not necessarily the same as being a retail customer. However, it seems that in this case, it really does become true and the two are sort of working together and I just think at a time when retail is going through so much structural change and effectively the way that they're going to do business has to change I mean there's a lot more detail in the story that I've written around the mobile market and how that is fundamentally changing from a contracts business to a phone only purchase system 
their market is changing. It's not just about reflecting what's going on with consumer confidence. Yeah, it, it too has to catch up to changing trends. Indeed, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, you know, I think I think you know, certain trends are out of their hands. The you know the shift to e-commerce, the the fact that device you know, upgrade cycles are kind of out of their hands. They've got to get the things they can get right themselves right, and they're not doing that. No. Okay. Well, that was that was. Uh, Brutal. <laughs> brutal. Brutal. Dixon's many years ago spun out another company. Actually, I haven't introduced Megan, who's over in the control room today. Uh, but Talk Talk had results this week. This was a spin out, actually, many years ago from Carphone Warehouse. Yeah, so this was founded by Charles Dunstan. Charles Dunstan founded Carphone Warehouse. Talk Talk was part of it. He's still a major shareholder in both companies. He's had a bad week. So this week, Talk Talk has had bad results. That's it's, not a first. It's though, just in, recent, it's just in, in a really, uh, really bad shape. Uh, I mean, I say exceptionally bad results. You could you could read the Talk Talk results well if you really wanted to find something good in Talk Talk. They they had a big increase in customer numbers, which is a sign that it, it was mainly to do with the television market. But it's a sign that that there is more demand for for bundled packages of telecoms. So put your TV and your landline and your mobile all in one bundle. Got some big competition there, though. This is what their problem is. So they've managed to get all these new customers, but the way they've done that is by slashing prices. They are so cheap, which means average revenue per user has come down. Their total revenue has come down, even though they welcomed more than 100,000 new customers last year. BTZE service is incredibly cheap and that's why TalkTalk has had to cut its prices so much because that's the only way it can compete. But it's coming at a massive cost, not just to revenue. It's it's costing them a lot in marketing, which is why profits are just... They've been absolutely slashed this year. They've had to cut the dividend. I don't even know why they're paying a dividend, to be honest. it's It's just a bit of a train wreck. Mm. And we've got this on a sale, haven't we? Yeah, it's it's really fallen a long way. And I think people are maybe saying, have you just called the sell at the bottom? But this company is it's not going anywhere at the moment, it's, apart from down. It's just in really, really bad shape. I, I have to say, I mean, I'm actually in the process of looking at all my telecoms uh, and TV providers. I'm, I'm at, that po- at that point in the upgrade cycle. So uh, I've been looking at pho- you know, mobile phones. I've been looking at BC Broadband customers. Should I switch to Sky? I, I, I pay for Now TV separately. You know, I, I, I think BT is expensive and I don't think it's a particularly fast service. BT have offered me mobile, but you know, actually they don't have a brilliant range of stuff. And, and, I, and I'm a customer of three. So, you know, it is, you know as a consumer... I'm looking at this and thinking, but the one actually the one company that I never look at is TalkTalk. Talk. Yeah, it just feels too cheap, it and does, I think yeah. I'm going to get a rubbish service. But that's the problem because the service isn't good. They haven't, they don't own any. This is what the, the main core of their problem is. They don't actually own any assets. They are completely reliant on open reach for the broadband. They're reliant on other people's mobile networks to carry four G and three G. So they don't actually have a basis from where they can be competitive. They have to rely on other people, which is a really dangerous position to be in when you've got Vodafone investing in in fibre, you've got BT investing a lot in fibre. Vodafone, BT are both investing in the mobile platform. Sky's investing in a mobile network. Everyone is being competitive in the asset space, but TalkTalk just can't afford to be. And all it's got is the fact that it's cheap. And like you say, in an era when we're not, we're not so worried about it being cheap. We're worried about being able to download that film on the train home. That's more important than... Well, I read books, but uh don't download anything. I'm a digital snob. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you should go for Talk Talk then. <laughs> yeah, maybe. 
there are a lot of people who rely on the digital network when they're commuting or when they're just wandering around listening to podcasts, listening to the ICs podcast. It's a digital world. I would encourage them to download it and then listen to it when, whenever they like, you know, even if they're in a tunnel. But hey, hey, whatever. Yeah, anyway, it's a talk, talk. Yeah, it's, it's not looking great. No. There. All right. Let's, let's talk about gambling because that is a sector that also has had a bit of a tough time lately. And uh, when was it now? A couple of weeks ago. There was a lot of speculation about the fixed odds betting terminal or maximum stake. And the worst case scenario came to fruition. It did, yes. They cut it to the it down from what it, uh, the £100 stake that it was previously down to a £2 maximum stake now. Or have announced that they are going to. The gambling companies have about, they estimate probably around two years to put it into effect. Two years? Two? Really? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I, I, they, they could do this immediately if they wanted surely surely you'd think so it's just a matter of adjusting the machines but part of the part of the negotiation was they had to give be given a su- sufficient amount of time to actually put this through mm, I, I'm not a big fan of gambling I have to say I think it's, well, it uh, seems like investing in some of these companies lately has been a bit of a gamble in itself because the different regulatory announcements in the different parts of the world yeah, no, no, absolutely. So it's not just the UK. So we've had the, the, the fixed odds betting terminals, which have been a, a staple of these companies' revenue recently. I mean, they're huge proportions we're talking about, aren't we? Yeah, if you're looking at uh, William Hill, they estimate is kind of the most exposed to these changes. And last year, 70% of the stakes placed on the fixed odds betting terminal machines were above the £2 stake limit. So- yeah. And what, and what sort of proportion of their overall revenues are fixed odds betting, have fixed odds betting terminals been? Quite substantially. I mean, lately they've been, you know, and you can kind of see that there's some sort of stake coming. I've been pushing more into the online space. But at the moment, retail was still making up the, it was the largest share of the revenue. Did not fix, fix our betting terminals form part of the retail yes, numbers? Yes, part of like the retail, like the shops that you hire, see on the high streets. Uh, absolutely. Um, and it's not just the UK where there's been uh, a bit of a clampdown on, on gambling. Uh, Australia. Australia, which, to be fair, is tends to be a much smaller proportion of revenue for the UK-listed gambling companies. But they have all expanded there because it was a friendly environment it for, for, for betting. Yes, that's right. But they, the first hit to these companies was at the beginning of the year in, or in February. They banned credit betting. So that was uh, Australian gamblers could essentially take out a loan from the gambling companies themselves and then use that to gamble. I, I, I'm just astonished <laughs> it ever was allowed to happen, but uh, there you go. It seems like a very sensible change, <laughs> one that's definitely difficult to argue with. But. Yeah. And then there's this point of consumption tax that's been coming through in different states. So South, South Australia is the one that has it in place already, and then Western Australia and Victoria have announced that probably early next year they're going to implement it too. So, so that represents just which those three states alone is almost half of the UK or the Australian gambling market. And so how does that work? When you place a bet, there is another tax on top of it. Basically. So when people place a bet, it's a tax that's on that, but it doesn't, it's not taxing the players, it's taxing the operators. Okay. Right. Okay. So, so an absolute disaster. This is where British bookies have invested very heavily, but the UK fixed odds betting market and obviously Australia, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. There very well could be coming from the US, which is could be a surprising one because apart from everyone knows Las Vegas and Nevada, but apart from that, it's not really the most gambling friendly country. No, well, there was uh, so so I remember it was, it was a, a while back now. It was, it was kind of in the uh, late two thousand, so you know, sort of two thousand and eight. I can't remember exactly what it was, but but you know, British online gambling companies had expanded quite aggressively into the US. 
and all of a sudden a law was passed that that essentially made the whole industry illegal overnight. And actually, I think, I, I think he, if I remember rightly, some British execs could not even travel in America because they would be arrested. So, wow. it, be, so it was outright prohibition, basically. Yeah, that's incredible. But, so the rule specifically that's been overturned now, it's, they dubbed it PASPA, and it's, has, it was passed in 1992 and it outlawed sports betting in particular. Okay, in so that's even, four states. That's an even older rule then. So you can go to casinos in Nevada, New Jersey, Atlantic City, uh, and then you have Indian casinos out there as well. That's right. Um, but sports betting is betting on, I don't know, over here, like betting on a football. Yeah, or, for example, you know, your favorite American football team is playing. You can't just go onto a mobile app and stick $20 onto it if you think they're going to win. But people do, don't they? Apparently, the American Gambling Association estimates that about $150 billion is gambled illegally every year. How? Are we talking the mafia? It very well could be. My goodness. So so this is potentially, you know, it sounds like actual prohibition. You, yeah. But you, le- you, you make something illegal, you, you, you uh, ban it outright, black market moves in. People uh, find a way to gamble People anyway. find a way to gamble. So the American... Uh, politicians have said, well, actually, we want to, we want to cut out this action. Yeah, which could translate into a very good thing because it shows that there's really a clear appetite among Americans to want to bet on sports. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned when we were talking about this this idea that, that actually there, there are sort of ways around it that they currently uh, use, uh, particularly around fantasy sports games. Yeah, there's some of these websites where you can like make a fantasy basketball team or a fantasy American football team or hockey team. And then, so that's kind of a way of betting on it while not still outright saying I think that this team is going to win. So you basically pay an entry fee and there's a prize pot. Yeah, and you can pick different players from different teams kind of mix and match in that sense rather than being on betting specifically on one team. And and, and reading the feature, sort of one of the sort of first steps that a lot of of companies have taken to get into the US sports betting market is to is to acquire these these fantasy uh, yeah, companies. the most recent one was Paddy Power Betfair bought this company called FanDuel. I think it was about two days after the PASPA Act was repealed. And earlier in the year, they'd also bought this company called Draft. Okay. A similar idea. Draft, it must be American football. It's not necessarily American football, just really? fantasy I thought, sports in general. I, draft, Draft, is, isn't this, this how they get new players for, new, for the teams? It's... Uh... You take yeah, the college, college draft, isn't yeah, it? It's the college the draft. draft. Yeah, it's draft for different teams, so you can get it for like basketball and okay. things like that too. This is how much I know about American sports. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so that's that's the first step, and presumably that will provide a nice platform for actual sort of results type betting. Yeah, it's a nice way to kind of get your foot in the door. Yeah. So uh, this sounds great. What it could does. go? What could go wrong? It's the thing is, it's now down to the individual states themselves to set their own rules. And so you would think that because there is so much legal gambling that goes on, that these states would probably be quite keen to legalize it because then they can stick a tax on top of it. And so if people are going to bet anyway, they might as well be able to take a chunk of the earnings off of that. It's a funny old place, America, though. States states have sort of, you know, there, there, are some, there are some inherent kind of moralistic sort of uh, philosophies running through Different states. Some are more liberal than others, let's say. Uh, and you've actually got an interesting map here because there, there are differences already in, in the way that you can, you can gamble. That's right. Um, so, so this could be essentially a bit of a slow burn as, as each state decides to make its own rules. And some states might never go it into this be. space. Yeah, it might be. A, there's, it's not going to perhaps be the immediate effect that some of the companies might hope for. 
because now it's down to the individual states to kind of set their own timeline for whether or not they even want to legalize it. But New Jersey seems to be the uh, first mover in this regard because they were the ones who challenged PASPA in the first place. So that's, at this point, one that you can say with a degree of certainty will make it legal very, very soon. Okay, it's like the Essex of America, as far as I understand it. New Jersey Shore, isn't it? It's like like a... What do they call it? The only way is Essex. <laughs> we love a bit of gambling in Essex, apparently. Um, right, so uh, who's going to do well out of this? So as, we, as we've, we've already talked about, gambling companies in the UK have had a bit of a tough time. Some of them might have been looking further ahead than others. And I think you've got a favourite who, who you think is best positioned to, That's right. to, 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 make, to make the most of this change. Yeah, we think our favourite has been GVC because for a combination of reasons for across the UK and Australia and... Uh, the US, because when they bought Ladbrokes Coral earlier this year, that was a company that was quite highly exposed to these fixed odds betting terminals. But they put kind of a caveat in the deal that they would pay a base of about $3.1 billion. And then once the decision on the fixed odd betting terminals came out, they it was kind of staggered on what the maximum stake would be, depending on what the additional they pay for after that. And with the £2 stake, that's been cut to nothing. So they don't have to pay anything more for them now. So they've got the best price they could possibly exactly. get for, for Labrix Coral. Or they've paid the lowest price they could possibly pay for Labrix Coral, which is great for yes, them. it's good news. Um, and what have they done specifically to, to give them uh, a leg up in the US? In the US, um, they've got uh, some partnerships in that exist already in Nevada and some in New Jersey as well with the casinos. And so... and. The chief executive, uh, Kenneth Alexander, has been very vocal about saying that he really is going to leverage those to the maximum extent. And at uh, a point last year was saying that if PASPA is repealed, this represents a huge opportunity. So depending on when the legislation actually comes through in these individual states, it's tough to say exactly what they can do right now. But they, at this point, they look quite well placed and quite keen to expand into the US. Mm. I mean, there was, a, there was a bounce in the share price when this, this uh, deregulation or regulation, or whatever you want to call it, was announced. How much of this is already in the price? I think there was a bounce, that's right. But I think that depending on which way these states go, there could be much further to run. Okay. Thank you, Julia. Um, no, I mean, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and uh, yeah, one to, one to keep an eye on uh, after some really kind of tough years for, for gambling in the UK. Um, regulation is something that, that you covered in the Sex Focus as well this week, written by Tom Dines, uh, but edited by you, Harriet. Water. Yeah, it's, far less uh, exciting. <laughs> it's not, quite but much as more glamorous. important. Yeah, um, obviously, much more important. Um, much more of a basic human right, frankly. Um, rights, and we pay, uh, rights that we pay handsomely. A right for. that we pay handsomely for, but that it makes um, a good sort of segue into the piece, really, because what Tom has looked up this week is a set of sort of principles which Ofwat, which is the water regulator, really wants to try and instill before the next cycle begins in 2020. Um, by cycle, it means that every five years, Ofwat comes up with basically a renewed set of principles and all of the major water companies must comply with said principles. But there are deliberations and discussions and most of that has already started. What One of those principles is simply how much money they are allowed to make. Exactly. So when you say, oh, it's a right that we pay for off what it has historically and continues to be very concerned with just how many how much money how many profits these water companies can actually make from what they call regulated assets and the reason that they distinguish between regulated and non-regulated assets is that obviously you have the water network which is the regulated asset but then a lot of these water companies um 
own other assets which are not as heavily regulated so like waste waste and energy systems and things like that and so water to them is really a benchmark which they are very strict on and it seems like that is going to continue i have to say i I, when i moved house a few years back uh we moved to a new water supplier i'll tell you what my waste bill went up enormously so so you know maybe they're not allowed to charge me as much for the water but if the waste is less regulated then kind of recoup it elsewhere yeah exactly and this is um this is something that happens across many many industries particularly ones which are exposed to regulation is that they do hope to recoup it elsewhere and then eventually those non-regulated assets come under the same sort of framework so it wouldn't surprise me if that's something that off what gets tougher on um in the next few years but before 2020 i don't think that will happen uh, I mean, one of the things i've always said about the water industry is that it, i mean it's, it's 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 a great investment it's infl- it's kind of inflation inflation proof and you know, it's, it's as good as gold, almost, in some respects. Is it going to continue to be such a great investment, the water industry? Yeah, I mean, this is something that Tom's looked at specifically. He's very aware that obviously a lot of our readers and investors in general get into utilities for dividends more than anything else. And it's interesting, there's a lot of upheaval going to go on before 2020, potentially. But the analysts seem to have reached a consensus that actually dividends should be fairly well protected, probably for the reasons that we've just said, in that they're going to recoup the money elsewhere. So actual cash flows won't necessarily necessarily be too damaged by all of this but there are going to be companies that fare better than others and I think the analysts have picked out United Utilities as one that might struggle to keep the dividend quite where it is but they don't see any real material damage coming coming towards dividends. I mean there is a big threat on the horizon the kind of the elephant in the room which is uh, the prospects of a Labour government. Mm. Has Tom addressed that in the piece? He has yeah absolutely I mean it's the reason why we've gone with it for a sector focus as you say it's not necessarily the most glamorous subject but it has been in the headlines a lot. Um, not just from Jeremy Corbyn calling for nationalisation of uh, of the entire network, but also Michael Gove, who obviously is part of the Conservative government. I mean, he has been pretty vocal um, about the sort of standards and corporate governance across the industry too. So it, it has found its way into mainstream press quite a lot this year. Mm, no, Michael Gove is interesting. I mean, he's... He, I presume when he talks about offshore tax structures, he's talking largely about some of the uh, privately owned water utilities. Yeah, absolutely. And that obviously feeds directly into Corbyn's calls for nationalisation as well to try and curb that. But, you know, Michael Gove's the Environment Secretary, so he's also very concerned about failures within the service and also general pollution and, and how we can combat that too. I think he's right. Is it wrong to say I kind of like Michael Gove? Is it, is, kind it wrong? Of, is it kind of wrong to say that I think that Michael Gove has found his true calling at long last? I mean, yeah, ask me two years ago and I was ready to throw him under the bus like everyone else. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think you'd struggle to find anyone in the UK who's not on board with a lot of his thinking at the moment. So, uh, so yeah. Are we, you, Michael? Do we still think these are worth buying, though? I mean, the, the, the million-dollar question for our readers is not whether we like Michael Gove or not, but but whether the shares are worth buying. Yeah, I mean, Tom's picked out a favourite. I won't spoil who it is. You'll have to pick out the magazine to Ooh, find out. Teaser. Or go online. Or go online. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, he's still he's still bullish on one company and not so much on another. So um, he definitely sees sees reason to buy to buy something. Okay. Thank you, Harriet. Uh, okay. Well, there's lots more in the magazine this week, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Harriet tack here and say you'll have to go and read it to find out what's in there but there is lots lots and lots and lots the results are winding down a bit now thank goodness it's been it's been kind of hellish recently we always get a late may flurry which we always is it may it feels feels like it's july yeah exactly we always manage to sort of forget about it i think with all the bank holidays you get sort of uh distracted oh we've got shoes on result in here this week 
<laughs> let's let's dive straight into shoe zone. Well, we talked about it last week, so we did. Uh, you can listen to last week's podcast yeah, to, uh, to get the full skinny on that one. Do that, do that. But yeah, anyway, all the usual stuff of the magazine: tips, tip updates, comment. Um, got three features this week. Emma's looked at Poland. This is a very interesting place. Because it's become a developed economy. Um, and Philip Ryland. So for those of you who are already planning your summer holidays, Philip Ryland's written a, a brilliant book about books uh, that are are not about investment but have lots of things you can learn about investment. It's called How to Be Foxy. So yeah, apparently, as an inve- according to Philip, and I think this is true, to be a good investor, it's better to be a fox than a hedgehog. And that is what he's trying to, to help us all become with this feature. So uh, have a look at that. Um, anyway, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Megan, over in the control room. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, go pick up the magazine, Gambling's American Dream. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.